Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. Dan, good morning to you. Welcome to Luck on Sunday. Thanks for having me again. Uh, not at all. Um, so much to talk about, as I say, later in the programme. But really, I just wanted to ease our way into this week by sort of taking stock, really, of, of you and, and your career and, and where it's at and, and how happy you are with nearly 800 winners in a very short space of time and 200 last year and the skeleton juggernaut rolling along. How are you feeling about life? Pretty positive, really, as you would probably expect. And um, I'm in a very lucky position. Obviously, you're as lucky as you often work hard, but you know, it, there isn't really any uh, any reason why we've sort of got luckier than others from the start of our careers. We set out uh, to make it happen, um, and it, it's it's been remarkable how it has kind of gone how we hoped it would and um, you know sometimes you're better off born a little bit lucky and I sometimes feel like that if I'm honest with you you know nine and a half years with Paul with all those great horses and you know my dad achieving what he'd achieved and you know we got to ride that roller coaster for a long while as mm. well it's been re I've had a remarkable life and I know I'm only a young fella in relative terms but um, I'm very grateful to everyone who, who give us the chance to do it really and um, hopefully you know, a good percentage of those think we rewarded them. You are obviously still infuriatingly young, as I was ascertaining a few moments ago. You are only 34. You have packed a hell of a lot into three and a half decades. Tell me a little bit about growing up as the son of Nick Skelton. Um, it was obviously your dad's your dad, mm. and your parents your parents, and that's it. You, uh, first and foremost, he was the one who, you know, who told us off, and, you know, two young lads around the place. You know, it's not easy to be a father when you've got two spirited young fellas who love motorbikes and riding ponies and sport and everything else. And he had the challenges of every father, just like I'm having now with my daughter. But um, it's it's great, and I know he enjoyed us us being uh, around when we were growing up. And we just saw him as dad. We didn't see him as this global sporting icon. Because don't forget when when I was born in the eighties, like that was when. Show jumping was a, a mainstream mm. BBC sport. Um, I mean, I'd like to think it still is. Yeah, well, I, and I quite agree. I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously revolutionised itself, the sport. But you know, that were the, those were the facts then. And um, you know, there was a lot of uh, you know there was a lot of things you had to deal with because people half expected you to be a great rider mm. because he was. Um, and I knew I was never going to live up to that expectation. Because uh, I just wasn't good enough. Harry was a, Harry was a very good rider, despite what you saw at Olympia this year. <laughs> <laughs> did you did you ride when you were? You I were did. Young? Yeah, yeah, a lot. I did a lot. Yeah, but I wasn't. I, I I can say this hand on heart. A lot of people say they got unlucky, didn't get the breaks and everything else. I just wasn't good enough. I was determined, very determined. I used to win quite a lot, but I wasn't skillful enough to produce horses to the next level mm. um, and, and get on and and. Yeah, that that that's the hardest thing in that sport, and that's why my dad's been so good. He's taken those horses like you know Top Gun, Arco, um, and Big Star, obviously, from real young horses, and made them into you know global stars. And you know, growing up, it was it was a great grounding around horses and a man who was under a lot of mm. spotlight, a lot of pressure, and he absorbed it. Um, you know, it was an era perhaps where. Um, you could be a little more insular. There wasn't the social medias, and you know, one thing Dad will admit, he isn't great with the press and the media and things like that. And I think we've had to—I've learned a lot from Paul on that. I mean, that, that's that's a fact. Um, but growing up, it was it was just 
Fantastic. Did you travel a lot together? Because the life of a show jumper is pretty itinerant these days. Yeah, all over the place. And you know, saw a lot of different cultures, a lot of different ways of doing things. Um, you know, in in England, the show jumpers, you know, they had sort of maybe six or eight horses, and that was considered to be a lot. And then you had the yards in, on the continent, like Paul Schockermoller's, where there was hundreds, if not thousands. And I got to see that before it became a thing. You know. It, he was like the Martin Pipe, Paul yeah. Schockermoller of, of the jumping world, and and you know people followed his lead, and I got to see and sort of experience these different types of manager, uh, you know, equine management theories, if you like, um, and I, I draw upon all of them in everyday life, really thinking, always thinking about how to improve your system and horses and and you know your staff, and it, it's it's an ever evolving business. Because there was an orthodoxy that always said that you couldn't train more than 100 horses, say. You, know, you couldn't have them and, and do the job well. So you were looking at systems abroad where people were managing, as you say, thousands of horses at a time and doing it successfully. Exactly. And Dad, during his early years, obviously, was, was working for Edgar's, and they were, they were Team Everest at the time. Mm-hmm. It was the first commercial sponsorship in show jumping, I think. Um, this is Ted Edgar. Ted Edgar, Ted yeah. Edgar. And, and they had... Um, they had about four or five riders there, and those riders, I think, I think three or four of them went on to get top international honours, be it Europeans, World, or Olympic medals. And if you've got people of that quality on your team, anything is possible. Any number is possible, um, and that's how I relate to it. I've got obviously my brother and his wife Bridget. I've got Tom Messenger. You know, you've got people that you don't see all the time. Nick Pierce, who we're going to talk about later, who trains Don Poli, mm. point to pointing. They're all capable in their own right. Sam Davis Thomas, who's another one of my assistants, had you know tons of winners, point to pointing. These are intelligent managers who, you know, in a different on a, with a different set of cards, would be very good trainers in their own right. And I can rely on them to do the right thing every day. And if, you, if you've got the people in place to maintain the system that you know works, then any number's possible. Was it always going to be racing for you? When, once I went to ditch it and, and committed to that, definitely. As long as, as long as people wanted me, as long as horses came our way, then it was always going to be that. But why did you end up at Paul Nichols in the first place? It's a funny story, actually, because um, I had a point-to-pointer, uh, my my first point-to-pointer was a horse called Mick the Cutaway. I think it was Ruby's first winner under rules, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, I had him as an older horse, and I won with him. And um, He actually went to Heather Dalton's. I bought him from Heather Dalton's, and I went away on holiday just before he had his first run, um, and about a fortnight, three weeks before he had his first run. And Heather had him back, and Heather got him fit. And I thought I'd got him fit, but looking back on it, I know that I didn't. And actually, he won first time and then deteriorated because I didn't keep him fit enough. Um, and it was a bit of a learning curve. You know, I expected things to get better, not deteriorate. And I'm thinking, what's going on here? This isn't, this isn't right. Um, John Hales then sent me a point-to-pointer because uh, he owned Arco at the time mm-hmm. with, with Dad. And he um, said, if we're going to do this, we better learn how to do it properly. So we were, Paul had his owner's day, and John Hales said, I'll give you a lift down to ditch it um, when we go down for owner's day and then um, spend a fortnight down there or something and you might learn something and off we went. And, and you it. never came home? No, and then uh, Paul actually, Paul and Dad had each other's numbers and, you know, because obviously Dad used to go racing a bit with John and 
um, Paul text Dad actually when I got back and said, um, "Great to have Dan down. Um, if if he ever wants a job, there's always one for him." And I, I remember we were in the kitchen at home, and I said said to Dad, "Well, text him back. So, what sort of job is this?" And he says, "Well, we haven't got one for him, but we'll make one." <laughs> so I rang him up and said, "What are you thinking?" And he said, "Well, we haven't got a pupil assistant, but..." We're getting to the numbers now where I can warrant having one of those. Um, and I went down there and I just grafted. I just, I just worked. I just, whatever needed doing, I did it. There was never a moment's, and I did that for nine and a half years. Once a month, I'd come in, slam the door, say to Grace, that's it, I've had enough, ring up Dad, you know, coming back, put some fresh sheets on my bed. And he'd say, oh, all right, yeah, fine. And he'd ring me the next morning, all right. Yeah, yeah, I'm busy on second lot. Ring you later. <laughs> yeah, but that's life, you know. And, and it was in a competitive environment at Paul's. So you always, you know, every day was intense. And every day was an opportunity to win more, do better. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes Paul's frustrations boiled over. Um, and, you know, on the way home in the car, sometimes we'd discuss all sorts and, yeah, sometimes I think oh, this is too much. Of, I'd get a, I'd get an earful for for nothing in particular because he needed to vent. But now I do it myself. <laughs> yeah, I can see that you know everybody has a pressure valve. Everybody has a pressure valve. It's it's how they release it, who they release it to. And actually, there's some. I'm still very good friends with Paul, and hope I always will be. But I I know for a certain period that I worked there, he. He knew, and actually the whole time I was there, he knew he could vent at me, and I was 100% committed to him. Like There was no doubt that you know, I was going to turn the towel in and, and off I went. You know, I might get frustrated with it, but he knew that I was as committed to winning as he was. Um, although it wasn't my name on the door, I wanted to prove myself. And, and prove yourself you did, and you were there at a golden time with some, some truly wonderful horses. I think you started just about the same week that Corto Star arrived. Didn't yeah, you? The, um, him and Denman walked into the yard, and, um, you know, it was, it was remarkable, really. They just, how they all came along at once, the masterminded, you know, Neptune Collange, uh, Twist Magic, and then there was, like, we went through a stage of, I remember it was, at the time it was, and it was Andy Stewart actually mm. who would buy these three-figure, like nowadays they're actually they're relatively cheap. He's buying these three-figure French horses, um, and we were just going out and winning that Grade One novice chase, that Grade Two novice chase, that Grade One novice chase, and like it was just like the amount of horses that we had that sort of bubbled under the surface yeah. that in any other yard would have you know set the world alight. Um, and that was what was great, actually, when we were there. Andy was always struggling for that festival winner. And then Celestial Halo come along, and then Big Bucks come along, and it was all all right. And I remember Paul being particularly stressed about not being able to get Andy that, fe- that first festival winner. And you got there in the end, and he had a, an amazing collection of owners as well as, as horses. But one of his great skills over time has been managing quite big, larger-than-life, wealthy characters, and he's done it very effectively. Like... He, he'd ne- he should never write the book because he should never give away all the secrets because it's probably his biggest asset. But like nobody, you know, I got I got I'm, I was well informed when I started this job, but there's always a lot of things you don't know. You know, Alex Ferguson said to Paul, 
teach him all he knows, not all you know. <laughs> and I'm very aware that that is the case. Um, and the way he handles the owners and the situations and you know he isn't afraid and I've I've brought that from him and from a dad to go right this is the line this is where I've got to sit um, and these are the reasons for me doing it and everybody can see it and he's I think his openness with the press and and, and his owners and and the situation sometimes landed him in hot water you know sometimes he's had to comment on things that he sometimes felt he shouldn't we all have to do that but he just has confidence that if it's not somebody's you know if he's upsetting somebody today tomorrow it will be a different scenario and that's life you, know, you can't win every time you know when ruby was around you ruby can only want, ride one horse in a race and it's a very difficult job to manage but somehow he did and he still does you had a great relationship with Ruby as well, didn't you, when, when he was riding for, for Paul? Yeah, he was like, he just, he just saw things very differently. Um, Paul was the ultimate, and is the ultimate believer. Um, regardless of ability, regardless of anything, he just believed it was going to happen. Um, sometimes to the, to the point where it was frustrating because you knew in your heart, that's not going to happen. But you know, what's the harm in being positive? Um, but I think Ruby, uh, being a great rider, he, he analysed things better probably than any other jockey. Um, but one thing that all those great sportsmen and women, I think, have is this unbelievable belief. There's, there's always got to be nerves. There's got to be nerves in whatever you do. doesn't matter if you've played playing your first match or you're playing your thousandth match as a footballer or whatever, there's got to be nerves when, before you start. But once the whistle goes, once the bell is rung, mm-hmm. you know, once the tapes go back, I think the one thing I can cross, uh, cross parties with, with Ruby, AP, my dad, is that once they're in their own cocoon and they are the, then the masters of what's about to happen, mm. they just believe it's going to happen. Somehow, and that, that's transmitted... To the horse, um, I just call it being a believe. Like I, I say, you're just a believer, you know. And I said that to Ruby, and I say it to Dad. You know, I remember Dad went to the Olympics on Russell, a horse called Russell yeah. in Beijing, and he jumped the warm up, and the horse jumped well. He rang me up, and he said, "You know what? He jumped well. It could be possible." I was like, "You know, this would be like this would be like me winning this year's Gold Cup with all mankind." It's just not going to happen. <laughs> but he was there, and he has persuaded himself, somehow, he's going to make it happen. And you, you've got to love that. You've got to love that and appreciate that and, and buy into that because you want, your, you want your striker thinking he's going to go and score three goals today. So how have you applied that? You, you, know, you know what the, the strengths and idiosyncrasies of people like Paul Nichols and your dad, Nick Skelton, are. How have you applied that to your own career? Because you can clearly see that from a slightly different perspective. You're not yeah. quite as... You are obviously very competitive, but you're, you're not a believer like that, are you? I am, definitely. And I, tran- I, I, I try to transmit that all the time. But Gracie says to me a lot of the time, my wife, that your passion can run into aggression. And I don't know I do that. And... I sometimes have to check myself to make sure that it isn't getting, uh, this isn't com- becoming a rant 
uh, and this isn't a, a, a something that's uh, you know trying to th- juggle a thousand balls. If I, I like to transmit to Harry, Bridget, my other riders, my owners, my staff at home that we're going to win. We're going to win. We're going to win lots, and we're going to win some that we shouldn't win. You know that's that's the mark of being really good. I think is winning when you shouldn't or when you mm. can't or whatever. Um, and I try to trans- I, I try to transmit that, but I I do see Grace's point that I can bubble into aggression where it becomes a, a an, an a- the atmosphere becomes a little bit you know, tense instead of it just being a pure competition. It becomes a little bit oh god he's going on a bit. <laughs> so you say you were the. You were the punch bag for for Paul, effectively. Not all the time. No, I don't mean. I don't want well, to I, but come I know, across no, as like, oh, look at me, I helped. Yeah, but, but but where do you vent? Where's, um, your, where's your valve? I think I've got better at it now. Um, I think I've got better at it now, but I've I, I don't I don't express the negativity as much as probably I should, and. Um, there was a couple of times last year that I wasn't proud of. When I had a 100th winner of the season, fastest 100 at Cheltenham, I made a terrible scene. And um, it was the day that one for Billy jumped the white tape, if you can remember. Yeah. Um, and I was just infuriated because there's nothing I could... Like, there was a winner, and it's gone. It's been taken away from us at Cheltenham, and I'll never get it back. And it, like, it wasn't my fault. And I thought, I'm the master. I'm the chess player. I moved the pieces. But I couldn't control that piece, and I lost my mind. And I lost my mind with Harry. I lost my mind with my dad, with my wife. We actually went off to a wedding that night in in South Wales, which was the best thing for me because I went away. There was no phone signal, and I came back and I was like, right. Did you all go in the same car? Just me and Grace. Okay. And it was very frank, and and the pressures of this job are constant, and they are. Um, they're, they're sometimes frightening, and you have to, you have to be able to say, okay, it's all right, couldn't control today, but tomorrow's a different day. We couldn't control that scenario. We'll, 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 we've learned from that. Um, so really, it's not about venting. Mm. I think when you get to the point where you're venting, you've, you've got a problem. You, you need to let it out before you get to the point where the the, literally, the top comes off the bottle. So, is that is that what has surprised you most? Even though you had nine years in a high pressure environment at Ditch, is it the is it the responsibility for all those horses, and more importantly, all those people weighing on your shoulders? Is yeah, that, massively. Is that what you've found difficult? Yeah, easily, easily the hardest thing. And I have no job security. Absolutely none. I have no job security whatsoever. I am there at the mercy of so many different factors. Um, if my owners or the owners don't want to send us horses, they're not contracted to. Um, you know, even down to the fact that the BHA hold my license, mm-hmm. and we have a strict liability policy in our sport, where this is this counts for all trainers, by the way, not me. Mm. Where you could be guilty of something that you're not, to one degree or another. And I'm not. I don't want to bring that into it and create a furore there but I'm just saying that's the way I see it do you know what I mean it's so you you have to t- cross every T dot every I make sure everything is is so right it, it's a it's a really hard process 
um, on a day-to-day -day thing. And if you thought about it all the time, you'd go, you'd go crackers. But the, the mental pressures of, of coping with a, with a sporting business where you're dealing with owners, and then at the end of the day, we've got staff who've got family. You know, I'm not just supplying for my family. Um, these people are relying on me, us, owners, results to pay them for them to live to pay their mortgage. You know, it's it's a when you bub, when you strip it back, you know, there's a hell of a lot of um, responsibility there, which is intimidating, um, and you're not getting any help, external help. You're getting help from inside, and you know, people might say nepotism in our sport is is, is rife. Um, but I can only say that positively because without them, I would be in big trouble. And if you're going to talk about family relationships and giving opportunities to members of your family, I think a lot of people in the sport really admire what you and your brother have achieved together and the loyalty that you've shown him and presumably has been reciprocated from, from him to you as well. How hard a sell has that been to owners down the years? Well, it's actually kind of backfired now I feel because Harry's so good that everybody's will Harry ride well we've got 100 nearly 40 horses in full training the idea is for Harry to ride them but there's there's days when there's two or three meetings and he can't um and that's hard to juggle but at the start I was like Harry's riding them Harry's riding them and to my, to, to my personal detriment Harry was riding them because I got a lot of owners who said I want to I'd like to send some horses but I want X, Y or Z to ride them mm. I said no that's not the rules you know it's our it's our premises you know it's predominantly dad's initial financial input this is the way it's going to be and we stood strong by that we've relaxed that now for obvious reasons but you know it, it, but only a little bit oh yeah only yeah. a little bit and, but everybody believes in Bridget now as well yeah, you know, I, I, I'm not going to bang on and say Bridget is underrated because I'm from my position. Of course, I'm going to say that. But there's an awful lot of chat about Bryony and Lizzie and lady jockeys on the flats and everything else. Like Bridget's got a big job. She's won at the Cheltenham Festival. She rides good horses every day. Um, I think she slips under the radar a lot. And I'd like to also think that that kind of demonstrates how we give we we we'll give everybody the best chance that we can mm -hmm. i've got one conditional jockey will marshall had a winner yesterday i haven't got three um i've got one amateur rider who went and rode um don poli for nick last week we try and keep everybody happy healthy and and and, and have their job security in place because if you know that you're going to ride them as a jockey you're going to be confident you don't have to prove your place every day every time you get your leg across one you have to think well today I've got to prove myself otherwise my job is in danger if you're under that pressure you ain't going to ride well you paint a very interesting picture of the pressures that that trainers are under on a day-to-day -day basis and you are one of the most successful operators in the country do you ever sit back and think well if it's like this for me what's it like for the guy or girl trying to make life work with 25 30 horses i say it all the time i mean, I might come across as a sort of a bit of a brash you know gunslinger almost <laughs> um but that's not that isn't really me you know there's a that you have to you have to put on a bit of 
you have to put a bit of a sandpaper sandpapery suit on and stay a bit rough and a bit uh, a bit edgy to keep your edge but i think about i think about all of it i think about all of it i think about how hard it would be if you weren't in that position you know and i a lot of a lot of running a business is not just making the right calls it's avoiding the wrong calls and i try to look at examples of people who aren't quite doing so well and where it might have not gone right for them or you know and sometimes i ask really inappropriate questions to people because i'm actually interested in how did you get to this point mm. and it might come across as offensive sometimes but i only mean it in a human and positive light and it's it's it it, it is a hard job and i i couldn't imagine you know i couldn't imagine having to do it with a small number of horses that you were really worried, are these staff going to get paid at the end of the day? Must be horrendous. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albastiet Cruel Dubai.